0: If we'll make our way back to our seats, just want to uh, remind everybody particularly if you're new is that uh, one Sunday out of each month we have the elementary kids kind of stay in their seats and so there's no elementary class this week but if you're new here uh, most weeks except for the fourth Sunday we have an elementary kids class where they go through uh, a curriculum and a fun activity time learning about the whole story of God and how it centers upon Jesus. And on that note, if anybody here would like to help in some way with that elementary kids class that takes place during the sermon, uh, Jonathan right here, if you'd raise your hand, uh, is going to have a brief, like 10-minute informational how to take next steps in that. And this is, this is really important. Uh, we want to be a church that emphasizes the primacy of parents and discipling their children, but at the same time, as a parent with children, it's good to have some help. And we believe that a part of living out our identity as the family of God means that we love one another's children. Also, each of our missional communities are engaging common mission field with lots of kids. Lots of children who don't have parents who have really any interest maybe in Christ or in intentional discipleship of their children. And so the more help that we have in our children's classes, then the rotation can be spread out and it can create capacity for us to better make disciples and partnering along with parents and to welcome new children from unchurched or unbelieving homes. Another note just to mention kind of connected with that, if anyone would like to to consider participating in some way with our music team, you can talk to Melanie who is right here, and most of you know, you could go to her at any point and just say, hey, I'd like to learn more about what that might look like. And so keep those things in mind uh, today. And now let's jump back into Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12, at least through most of chapter 12, is a long passage of Scripture with a lot of names. And you guys have already seen that uh, in a couple other chapters. And you may think, why would a New Testament, a New Covenant church, take the time to look at the book of Nehemiah? Well, one reason is, is when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.16 that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness, what what he was talking about was the Old Testament. We may sometimes forget. That's what he was saying is that this stuff is good for you. He says in the verse prior to that, this is what leads us to salvation in Christ. In another place he talks about how these examples are given in the history of the Old Testament that we might not fall into the same errors and that we might live into the same faithfulness where we see it. And Jesus says in John 5.39 that you search the scriptures but you miss what they're talking about, the Old Testament, because they're all pointing to me. And Jesus said, I came to fulfill these, but also to further them now through the Spirit-filled people of God That we know today through the finished work of Christ as the church. And so we we look in Nehemiah because we want to see what does it look like for us to live in light of the truth of God that He's given us as His people today. But if any chapters kind of test that, these kind of test it a little bit. Because we got a lot of names about people relocating to Jerusalem or staying in their villages a lot of names around families of Judah, Benjamin, around priests, around Levites, around temple servants. But I think just in line with all those verses that I read that there is good news here for God's people today that we can learn from and we can live out. So Nehemiah chapter 11. We may not read all the verses today for the sake of our time, but we're going to read, we're gonna read a, a good deal of them to help set the stage. So Nehemiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now, we're going to start uh, to see some more of the details, but just to go ahead and read chapter 3. These are the chiefs, I mean verse 3, These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his own property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. So this verse kind of gives us the outline for what the rest of the chapter is going to say. And so I'm just going to give you kind of the highlights of what each little section is about without me stumbling and bumbling through all these names like I did last time. Verses four through six give us the names of the Judahites who lived in Jerusalem. Verses seven through nine give us the names of the Benjamites who lived in Jerusalem. Verses ten through fourteen, you can see at the beginning of each these verses, it lays this out. Verse ten of the priest, it gives us the names of the priests who lived in Jerusalem. Verses fifteen through twenty-four give us the names of the Levites, temple servants who lived in Jerusalem. And then we transition in verses 25 through 36 from these names of those who lived in Jerusalem to those who remained in the villages, particularly of Judah and of Benjamin. So again, verse 25, And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages. And then it explains. So then we get to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, we shift the attention from the relocation to the re-identification of these priests. And some of us may think, oh, this is kind of boring. But remember, lists are not boring when it's your family. And think of it as if you're reading off an inheritance, right? If you're somebody else's inheritance, it's boring. But if you're showing up saying, is my name going to be mentioned? So think of it like this. My name's going to be mentioned. You want to know something else that's boring? Maybe controversial for a lot of students being here. Going to graduations is really boring. Right? It's really boring. But you know what makes, what gets you there is when your name's going to be called or when somebody you love's name is going to be called. Then it's not boring, it transforms from this impersonal, boring thing to all of a sudden this glorious celebration. And so what we have here in the listing of these names of these people, where they're living, why they're living there, the names of these priests, is it saying like, wow, God is still at work. God is keeping His promises. There's still a place of God filled with the people of God. There's still priests of God who are leading in the worship of God. And so in this chapter 12, we see all of these names brought out from the past and into the present to show that God is continuing To have a people who live for the praise of His glory in the midst of this world. So, in chapter 12, we we see these things laid out. We see the heads of the priestly families that are giving. We see the priests that are returning from the exile, the Levitical families... In verses 12 through 21, we see the heads of the priestly families in the second generation, so it's saying God was faithful then; He's still faithful today. In verses 22 through 26, we see the heads of the Levitical families. And then I'm going to read verses 27 through 43 in whole, verses 30 at the end of chapter 12. This is the dedication of the wall. So it says, Then I brought... At the, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. So I wanted to read, read that whole verse. And it goes down here and it talks about all that goes into this. It talks about the priest leading in this from a place of Purification that they're not doing this apart from the, the glory and the righteousness of God. It talks about the temple servants. It talks about choirs. If you've ever wondered why some churches have choirs, this is, this is where it comes from, that in the Old Testament, often these choirs were formed, uh, usually in this temporary fashion, to, to pray, bring praise to God through music. And there's all kinds of instruments mentioned here showing the glory of God brought through music. And then we get to the last verse, verse 47, and we're going to read that whole verse as well. No, that is verse 37. No, it's verse 43. Third time's a charm. Looking all around the place here. Because this is really the, the climax of these, these sections. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Father, we thank you right now in advance for the good news that you're going to take from this word and pierce our hearts. And we just invite you and ask you with all the humility we can muster, God, to convict us where we need to be convicted and to comfort us where we need to be comforted. And may we receive your truth as supreme over... All the other voices in our head and the voices of our world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hopefully, this isn't the case for those of you who are college students, but at least for the younger children, when they go to school immediately or go out into the world in anyway as little guys on their own, I know you elementary students are in here, some of you've jumped back into school one way or another, there's some basic information. That they need that is very important that you want to equip them with before they go out into that new world without mom and dad what is some of that information who could help me here think out loud a little bit what is that basic information you want them to know if they're going to go somewhere by themselves don't talk to strangers strangers. all right what else Look look both ways And I'm thinking even more basic. These are great things. Who your, are. who your parents are. Yes, that's very important. So if they were to say, hey, Josiah, my son, who are your parents? He could say, these are my parents. What else in line with that? That's getting us. Where you live, right? So I want you to know your address. I want you to know where you live. And then what's the like most basic thing of all? Your name. All right, this, is, this is really important because I think that however old we are, that as we go out into life and into the world, that we need to know our names, we need to know who we are, we need to know who our family is, and we need to know where we live. If you don't know these things, whether literally or metaphorically this morning, you are going to be in trouble if you get lost. You're going to feel really anxious because you don't have the most basic information that can get you back home and can reorient you to the life that you have been born to live. You will likely get further lost if you say, hey, I think I remember what it looks like. Just let's drive around until we find it. You're probably, most likely, not going to be thinking about helping others get home because you don't even know where a home is for you and also to our don't talk to strangers and look both ways before we cross the streets, is, is you're going to now be very vulnerable. If you don't know your name, if you don't know who your family is, who your people are, and you don't know where you live, now, now you've become a lot, you've become vulnerable to, to all kinds of threats and disingenuous people. Every one of us in here is prone to forget who we really are. It's prone to forget who our people, who our family really is. And especially in view of what I think the text is taking us to this morning, we forget where we really live. Where is really home? It's the kingdom of Jesus. If we, if, we, if, if we cannot answer that from our hearts, not just our heads, but from our hearts, that my primary identity and my primary residence and my primary purpose in life flows from the fact that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, I have been included into the family of God and I am a part of the kingdom of Christ, then we're just going to feel so lost at so many points in the world. Some of us, maybe this morning, you've you've never learned that. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. And it feels as if you have have no stability, you have no place. Others of us in here who have learned this, but we forget it. And when we forget it, we find ourselves riddled with anxiety, sometimes with addictions. And these alternative, destructive adaptations to give us some sense of belonging in the world. We open ourselves to these various idols in the world that come to us and tell us, I know you don't have a home, but I can give you belonging. I can give you peace. I can give you people who will approve of you, or at least people who will assist you in getting some kind of fix, some type of escape from this feeling that you have nowhere to plant your feet and to rest your soul. I know know what it feels like, and I would assume that you do, to forget where I really live. We know what it looks like to see people who are both homeless literally, but I want to propose many of us who are homeless figuratively as well. Aimlessly floating through life. Just trying to survive to the next day. And being deceived by the enemy to think that's freedom. And to miss the great invitation of our Father and of our King today. To really live out of who we are. Who we belong to. And to be sent out to the work of the kingdom. The main point of Nehemiah 11 chapters 11 through 12:43 is the repopulation of the city of Jerusalem. And you might ask, well why does that matter? Because this is a chapter that if we read it not just sort of taken out of context, but in light of the whole story of God, it's another confirmation that God is faithful these stumbling, bumbling people of Israel just like all of us continue to find themselves walking in the discipline of God, out of the promises of God, and yet God continues to bring them back. He continues by His grace and for His glory and for the good of the nations to just go back there to Genesis chapter 12 where He promised Abraham that there will be a family that comes from you that will be not just a blessing to one another, but be a blessing to the nations. He's the God of Exodus 19, who after this people found themselves in Egypt, He brought them through this great redemption, and then He said, You will be a kingdom of priests. Your whole existence together will mediate My presence and blessing to this world. It's the story of Deuteronomy chapter 7, or even in the context of God laying out his covenantal blessings and curses for those who would reject him, says Israel, I chose you not because you were better than anybody else in the world, but just because I love you and I have pledged my covenant faithfulness to you. It's about the never stopping faithfulness of God on the other side here in Nehemiah of Israel's exile to Babylon and Persia, and we're reading here that the promises of God never fail. It's about a God who gives us a list of names that say our history as His people is not unredeemable. And that all of the world, the flesh, and the devil would love to wipe us out would love to wipe the memory of the people of God and the power of God from the face of the earth. And that was the intention of Persia and Babylon and the intention of many enemies today, that God never fails. Israel will fail again, if you know how the story goes. They will fail again, but God will not. He will send His Son to be the true and better Israel who will call 12 disciples, very imperfect, again, stumbling and bumbling, but yet through His grace to renew the people of God, to renew Israel into this body of Jew and Gentile that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, now through Christ has been made one. And He will do it not merely so they can sit and stare at each other and say, isn't this great? that God's put us together, but so that they can be a light unto the nations. This is our story in Christ. Where we live, just as much as where they live today, is not about a piece of property somewhere in the Middle East, but now through Jesus is it about the people of God who are known as the Bride of Christ. And we're called through the Spirit to take ownership of that. We forget the glory of the church. We forget the glory of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus looked at this renewal he was bringing through his work and he said, you are a city on a hill. What is he talking about? If you've read the Bible... Every reader at that time, every listener that would have heard those words out of Jesus say, you're a city on a hill, what city would they be thinking of? Jerusalem. That's the city on the hill. And Jesus is saying, now through faith in me, you are that city on the hill. Now go and be a light. Don't hide your light. Live your light. So how do we do that? That's what we want to touch on today today. The only way we do this is by knowing where we really live in the kingdom of Jesus so we can really live it out now in the stuff of everyday life. Let's say that again. We must know where we really live in the kingdom of Christ so that we can live that out now in the stuff of everyday life. Well, what does that look like? The first thing I think we see here, putting all of chapter 11 together, is living where we really live. So that's a phrase you can attach on today. How do we live where we really live? It looks like a mindset of kingdom Relocation. That everywhere we live, we have been placed and sent by God. And in, in this chapter, we're seeing that rebuilding the city of God involves addressing this popula- population and relocation problem. So if you were here in chapter 7, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, we see the walls are completed, the city's being rebuilt, but then as Nehemiah looks and sees these beautiful walls, it's like in the background are crickets. ...because nobody lives there. Because of the, the situations you can read about in the book of Ezra... ...and coming out of the exile, there's these enemies that have taken up residence... ...primarily in the city. And the people of Judah, the people of God, are living out in the villages. And so Nehemiah is coming back with this rebuilding, this rehabilitation... ...this restoration plan and God has given great success to the physical aspects of it, is Ezra with the temple, now Nehemiah with the walls, but there's nobody there. And the purpose of the walls and the temple were not ends unto themselves. it was so that there might be a people who were radiating the glory of God through lives of worship unto the world. And so this is really like jumping from chapter 7 to chapter 11, now Nehemiah is addressing this problem directly. The problem is addressed first, we see in these verses, by some leaders moving in, or it, it could have been all, there's debate on this, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. So the first step was is that the leaders would relocate themselves to live with the primacy of this mission in mind. We also see in these verses, at the end, in verse 2, that some willingly choose to live there, but then there's also like this, I don't know if lottery is the right word for it, But there's also like this tithe of the people, this 10%, who they're going to cast lots for. And if if your name gets drawn, then you're moving into the city. So there's this combination of organization that takes place to make sure the city's repopulated. But then there's this organic nature of those who willingly choose to do so. But as I think we'll see here, is that even those who participated in this casting of lots there was a willingness and an eagerness and an understanding to do that as well. So we see some relocate, but what we also see here, and I think this is, this is just striking, and it needs to be underlined, is what verse 2 says, And the people blessed those who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. That is, people, some people went, physically relocated, and some people didn't physically relocate, But they had a missional mindset about what was taking place, and they participated. One of the reasons why we see it wasn't everybody's got to move there is because they still needed some people living out in the country to farm. That this wasn't just some vision of urban renewal that said, if you really love God, everybody moves into the city. It was this, we need people there because at this point in redemptive history, Jerusalem, Zion, plays such an important role, but we also are going to have some people who live on the outskirts who support and are a part of this in an intentional way as well. And what I love here is there seems to be no sense of competition. We have to admit it, sadly, sometimes in church cultures, particularly in those that are are highly missional in the way that they speak, like our church is, if we're not careful, the way the enemy comes into that is there's this sort of competition, like who can be more radical? Who can be more sacrificial? Who can show that? Who really loves Jesus the most? And and that's just demonic. What we see here is there's this unity. Man, some people are willing to do that. That's great. We're not going to sit back and kind of hang our heads in shame. We're going to celebrate that. There's no spiritual competition. There's no judgment. They can rejoice in someone else making a sacrifice. Sometimes we see some of our brothers and sisters make a big sacrifice for the Lord. And if we're honest, we're slow to celebrate that because we're so stuck looking in the mirror about how it might make us look. We're like, well, that just when somebody else does something great, it makes me feel guilty. When somebody else does something great, it makes me feel shame. A gospel motivation can say, wow, look at what they did. And rejoice. And rejoice. And the person that did it doesn't look to the person who may not have done it in that instance and say, Why don't you get on my level? No, they realize that this is about following Jesus. This is not about spiritual one upmanship. And so verses 3 to 24 and 25 through 26, we see it's not only listed who moves into the city, but it's also listed who remains in the villages. But there's this mindset that wherever we live, we're there as the Lord's. This is so important. Whether you are led by the Spirit through the word, through God's community and discernment, whether you're led to actually relocate where you live for the sake of God's mission, or whether you don't, you are both sent by God where you are to live as his people. This is what we're after in our church. This is why our church is named Matthew's Table Church, a name that always has to be explained and Again, some of you have heard it, people oddly think my name's Matthew as if I would have named a church after myself. It's because in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus goes to Levi to Matthew's table. And it's there with him at the center, his disciples, and then this group of people, tax collectors and prominent sinners who are there who don't really maybe yet know what's going on, but they want to know more because of the compelling life of Jesus, find themselves together. Do we see what what, what happened at Matthew's table? Was that there the kingdom of God was manifest? That Levi, Matthew's house, now became a place where heaven and earth met because Jesus was there? This is how we're called to view our homes. Not as our refuges from the world. Not as our castles of escape. but as the land of the Lord. This is why we form and organize our church through what we call missional communities. Because we know that that's easier or harder for some of us in some ways, but God has designed for us to do this as the body of Christ. Jesus was there and His disciples were there. We want to align our everyday mission with also common mission engagements where we put a stake in the ground, where we put a flag in the hill and we say, this is a place where heaven touches earth. As Paul says in Galatians, that the Jerusalem above comes down through Christ and His people as they gather. But for this to really happen, we have to have this mindset to where we look at our locations differently and our identities differently. I'm, I'm always hesitant to share stories because I, I, I believe in something called ethical storytelling as I don't want to use experiences to manipulate or to sugarcoat or to make things sound better than they are. But I wanted to share with you just a picture from this week and in, in our missional community of what it looks like when, when you, you take this mindset that where we are is where the Lord's place is. And so I'm going to try to redact some names the best that I can. So one man in our neighborhood whom we met, who I met through my everyday mission, just living as if where I go, this is the Lord's. He stepped into our church on his last leg a little over a year ago, and he came to the communion table, and he confessed that he had lost his job, he didn't know what was next for him in life. And one of our people, also a part of our missional community, who's, who's here this morning, shared about a season in her family's life where they had also had to sort of relocate and rediscover what it meant to live, but God was faithful. So this led him into to, to feeling safe and to feeling like he could take a deeper step into community And he began to just attend more, to show up at our missional community's family meal. And over the course of this past year, we've built relationships, we've shared the gospel. We found out that he uh, rides a bike to work several miles every night. And this is because of fines in his past that needed to be paid to get it cleared to have a license. And so our church, through our general giving, but also through support directly from our missional community has worked to where now he has a, his learner's permit in hand because he had to go back through that process and will soon have his license. But to top this whole thing off, another family, a part of our missional community that's, that's here today, showed up Wednesday night and just gave them his van, their van. They could have sold for money. And his wife, who's just recently went through surgery, hopefully to recover her eyesight so she won't be blind in both eyes, just rejoiced because now they wouldn't have to rely on public transportation or exorbitant fees on cabs or asking somebody else for a ride. This takes place, this type of relationship, not by just showing up, not by throwing money at problems, but by relocating how you think about your life in your sphere of relationships. This family that gave the van then went back to watch their immediate neighbor's children while the mother, because the mother who was in the hospital, who doesn't speak any English, by the way, a language barrier, again, because they've said, Our home and our street, this is the land of the Lord. Our everyday mission, this is, this is where God has sent us. In our common mission, these are the people to whom God has sent us to. I could go on and on, but after a killer meal then Wednesday night, that somehow happens each week because a group of people say, we are the family of God, and healthy families should eat at least one meal together every week. With people there who've driven some from from Georgia, another state, to participate in these meals, making amazing meatball sandwiches, not just so that people have a place to connect from Sunday morning, but so that people who don't yet know Jesus can experience some good food together with good family. a group divides up to go serve in the community garden. And this garden is a picture and the work there, not just of a we need a service project. But it's a part of a bigger story of a group of people who show up saying, we're, we're, we're relocating our minds about what it means to be the sent people of God. And neighbors have been watching through their windows and saying, wow, those people don't just show up to check off their service project list. They keep coming back. They actually care about us. This isn't about them just being able to pat themselves on the back. This is a people who are a faithful presence it led to one person in the neighborhood saying about this, you know, we see a lot of people come through here, but you guys have earned the right to share the gospel. Now, we could debate all day long about needing to earn the right to share the gospel, but from the perspective of people on the ground, people who in our southern religious culture have been put through the ringer of intensive personal evangelism, Meant much well intended. It means a lot to see that somebody's gonna come back and care for you regardless of how you respond. These stories could go on and on through our missional communities and through our everyday lives, and I have more but I'm not gonna share. But I'm trying to give you a picture of the possibilities and the opportunities to step into this story. What is we're not called today to move to Jerusalem? But we're called today through the finished work of Christ to live as the people of God and to bring the praise and the glory and the place of God wherever we go. Is that how you think about your life? That wherever you go, there you've been sent by God to your dorm room, to your suites, to your workplaces, to your family to the street on which you live, to the common mission that you connect with through a missional community. If you want a practical way to think about this, I would just encourage you to sit down and make a list of names today of people who inhabit all those spheres and to ask the Lord, how would you help me to live more intentionally sent to them? So that this place that I... any place that I step into becomes a place for the glory of God might be met. Our next point touches on this in a, in a very direct way and just builds on it, that living where we really live. So if I'm everywhere I go, I'm thinking, I know I'm here, but where I really live is the kingdom of Christ. So I'm taking that everywhere I go, that my primary citizenship, as Paul says in Philippians, is I'm citizens of the kingdom of Christ. But also to do that well, we have to get to chapter twelve, which is talking about priests. We have to see that living where we live where we really live not means this constant vision of relocation, whether literal or, or metaphorical or analogical, if that's the right word, but it also means this kingdom re-identification. So rebuilding the city not only meant repopulating the city, but rebuilding the city also meant re-identifying who the priests were, who their families were, and what their purpose was. In the Old Covenant, we see Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests. That is, together, collectively, as a whole, they would mediate the presence and blessing of God to the world. But within the Old Covenant and within Old Covenant Israel, we see that there was this... particular lineage and line of actual priests who administered the sacrificial system, who led in temple worship. And in this chapter, chapter 12, these verses 1 to 26, we see the priests and the Levites are listed as those who p- lead the people in a few ways. You can go back and check this if you want to check me later. Normally we're not in these big chunks, and I'm saying, notice this verse, notice this verse a lot. But today it's just a kind of a different animal. But here's what they do. They lead the people in praise. They lead the people in understanding the word of God. They lead the people in giving thanks to God. And they lead the people in keeping watch over the city and its mission. What they're doing, and why this is important, that the people of God not only have a place, but they have a priesthood, is so that their priority of worship and the need to meet God through the sacrifices is not lost or left to the wayside, because the place is nothing without worship. So what in the world does that have to do with us today? You may be thinking, well, Jesus has come, he's fulfilled the old covenant, we don't have priests today. At least if you're here, you're probably not a part of a church tradition that calls anybody a priest, although there are many who do. The Bible makes it very clear in 1 Timothy 2, 5, that there is only one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. The Bible makes it very clear that we have one great high priest, and that is Jesus. But what we sometimes forget that the New Testament and in the New Covenant that is made equally clear is that the priestly identity of the people of God is not removed. As in all things, Old Covenant to New Covenant, what Jesus comes to do, he says, is not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It's that he brings the heart of the law to us, and he never lessens it. He always expands it. And If you just think of the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, not commit adultery. What does Jesus do? Say? "But I, but I say, it doesn't really matter. No, he says, no, now I say if you have lust in your heart. You've heard it said, don't kill your brother. But I say, anger in your heart. Jesus never lessens it. And it comes with how we think of all the law and his fulfillment. Is that Jesus isn't saying, now I come. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the great priest. And so now, just forget about all that kingdom of priest stuff. Now, if you will read in the Bible, we have verses like Revelation 1-5 that just declares again, exactly, almost word for word, I just got to read it to you. I wasn't going to. If I can find it. Bible drill. Present sword. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Listen to this. Grace to you and peace from God... Peace from him who is and was and is to come... And from the seven spirits who are before his throne... And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness... The firstborn of the dead... And the ruler of the kings on earth... To him who loves us... And has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. It's saying through Jesus' work, what has he made us? Priest. Did you know that you're a priest? If you don't, we need to know this. And you need to own it. You are a priest. We can go to other verses. 1 Peter Chapter 2, where it says, you are a royal priesthood. You might, you might need to step out of your shame this week and look in the mirror when you get up in the morning and say, I am a priest of God. You need to remind your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that they are priests to God. In my life, I found out very quickly early on when I was got really serious about following Jesus that guess what, I was always going to be the one that was called on to pray at the family get-togethers. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? It's a birthday party, will you pray? It's this meal, will you pray? And at some points I kind of got to where I resented it. And then it dawned on me thinking about this kind of thing is it's like, oh, they're looking at me like the family priest. Like who, who around here is going to connect us to the presence of God. It's really a beautiful thing if you think about it. That God has called you through the union He has with Christ to send you out in the world to mediate the presence and the blessing of God. One person in our larger family of churches would say, you know, when we think of priest in traditional terms, we often think of somebody wearing the white collar. He just said, every morning, not literally, of course, but just imagine, like, I'm putting my collar on. And now I'm going to go to my job. I'm going to go to my classes. I'm going to step into my house. And I'm going to realize, when I step into this sphere, I'm here to represent God. I mean, what if if you thought about it that way, that when you're in conversation with people in your everyday life, in your missional community, in your fight club, what you want to do here? really is be nothing more and nothing less than to help somebody attune to the presence of God. To just pause and say, hey, could we just pray for a second and acknowledge that God is here? To when they have a question, a concern, that you might be the one to say, we could talk, but what if we just stopped and asked the Lord to show us through His Word what He has for us here? When you see people... Literally, again or metaphorically, in the ditches of life, like the parable of Good Samaritan. You know, you know who the two people are who pass by? Connection to our text today? It's the priest and the Levite. What if you, when you walk through this world, you walk through and you're like, Man, I'm I'm a priest. I'm the one who's supposed to stop. I'm the one who's supposed to care. And that being a priest doesn't mean that I'm going to my Bible study so I pass by everybody in need. But being a priest in the image of Christ means that I love someone. I love it when I hear, I, I really do, when I have these moments on a Sunday morning, Sunday gathering, or Wednesday night, and some of you can critique me on this later and we can talk. When somebody, you know, we're having this, our missional community family meal, and somebody says, hey, I can't make it because my neighbor was in need and so I'm going to help them. That's not a loss, that's a win. That means you aren't, weren't on your way to do churchy stuff, walking by everybody in need. And so, the last point, I'm always out of time, there's just too much good stuff in the Bible. The last point is this. Verses 27 through 43 that living where we le- really live doesn't mean this constant relocation mindset, this constant re identification mindset, but lastly, it's celebration. They organize the celebration for the dedication of the wall, and they just go all out. I mean, there's, they're bringing in the bands, they've got the, the teaching, it's just like this grand event. And, and we notice in verse 43, it, it is like getting loud is really loud. It's so loud, it says the people, the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This is the Israel living into what they were called to live into as a light into the nations. They weren't called to be this sort of super somber, always just super serious. Like, sometimes we think holiness means that i got to be this hardcore Never smiling person. When we we talked about this another week, when holy the culmination of holiness is joy, it's rejoicing. It gets loud because not because life is easy, there's a lot of work to do, but because God is good and He's given them so much. He's rebuilt the walls. He's repopulating the city in spite of their sin, in spite of their suffering. He's keeping His promises and the mission of God for the glory of the world. One of the things I've learned from becoming closer friends with the Latino community in our area is they know how to party. I love it. I don't know how many times I drive down the streets of our neighborhood and I look at this yard that's just scattered with food and family and and I'm just thinking, I want to be invited. Not only do I love the food, that just looks like fun. It It just looks like more fun to me than going home and finding something on Netflix and heating something up in the microwave. We were invited by one of our friends to a to a one-year-old birthday party that put any wedding I've ever been to to shame. And it wasn't just about this one-year-old that won't even remember it. There was, like, multiple bands. There was clowns. There was bounce houses. I don't know about the clowns. It makes me nervous. But I was just thinking, like, there's a... All the money that was spent, people traveled from out of state. And there was a joy that could be heard from far away that I wanted to get in on. We have something much greater to celebrate as the people of God much greater than any cultural expression, much greater than what Nehemiah and them were looking to. Because we don't look back simply to the rebuilding of the wall or the repopulation of city. We look back to our Savior Jesus who came to be all that Israel never could and we never could, who went to the cross to bear the just judgment of God in our place, who took it all upon Himself so that we can know our sins are once and for all forgiven. And that if we will turn from ourselves and our sin and turn to Him, that when God looks at us, He sees the righteousness of Christ. That when you look in the mirror with that guilt and that fear and shame, that you know that you are covered with all that Jesus is. That's a reason to rejoice. And when we look around the room and we look around at each other through the eyes of the flesh, we may not see a lot. We may see people who hurt us. We see imperfection. But what we're looking around and seeing is the people who are covered and bought by the blood of Christ. We are the children of God. And we should have a joy that represents that before the world. Not a happy, slappy, fix kind of fun that's attached to our circumstances, but even through the midst of sorrow and suffering, where we keep coming together and we keep rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. In Acts chapter 8, this is what it looks like For we go to the Lord's table, when the power of God through His Spirit brings this into people's lives. I promise to stop here. And there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So notice the church was the church when it was scattered, not just gathered. That's important. Except the apostles. The church is scattered and they don't have their leaders, but they're still the church. This is really important. They're scattered, except the apostles. Oh, I want to go on like a 20-minute rant about everybody going wild that because churches can't do this, they can't be the church. Because that ain't what the Bible teaches. But anyway, we're not going to do that. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. How was he ravaging the church? They weren't even gathered because the church was house to house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered, again, remember the apostles aren't a part of this. So those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They're not in Jerusalem. They're scattered. They don't have their leaders, but they're all going about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And this is Acts chapter 8, verse 8. So there was much joy in the city. So there was much joy in the city. When God's people scatter with this relocation mindset that where we go, the kingdom of Christ goes. When they scatter as priests, like I don't need my pastor to come share the gospel for me. I don't need my pastor to do this. I want to be equipped now that I can go wherever I'm sent because I'm a priest. When we live like that, now we've got the foundation for a joy that comes in our lives and in our cities that demands a gospel explanation. But we must know where we really live in the kingdom of Christ so we can really live in the stuff of everyday life. Father, we thank you for these good news, gospel realities that are ours. Help us, Lord. Help me. Forgive me, God. I, I live as if where I am is about me so often. I live as if my identity is not to mediate your glory but my own, and I confess that I often live with a lack of joy and a response to life that's rooted in my circumstances instead of the victory of Christ. In Jesus' name.